Okay, good evening. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in systematic theology, and now we're back to it. Session number 43, we're continuing to look at redemption, which is God's work of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing their redemption from sin, and then applying that redemption to the elect. And we're looking at the application of redemption, the point where God actually applies the benefits of salvation to a person he elected in eternity past, before the world was. God applies these benefits in a certain order, a certain logical order. Some of the benefits are applied at the same time, but there's a logical order to the application of the benefits. Certain things need to happen, logically speaking, before other things happen. And this order is what theologians refer to as the ordo salutis. We've been going through that. It just means the order of salvation. And different Reformed theologians, they have you know, differences slightly on the order that they, where they put together the list of the Ordo Salutis. But I printed the order in your notes that, that, that I'm presenting. And we've already covered what I call step zero, which is election, God choosing his people by name in eternity past. Then we looked at step 1A, which is the effectual call. And for the last three sessions, we've been studying step 1B, which is regeneration or the new birth. And we're going to wrap up that material tonight on the new birth, and then we'll move on, as I said, to repentance and faith the next time. Now, as a review, the theologian Gerhardus, Gerhardus Voss defined regeneration this way. He, de he defined it as an immediate recreation of the sinful nature by God the Holy Spirit and an implanting into the body of Christ. God the Holy Spirit removes our hearts of stone that we had as natural people, the way that we were born. And that heart of stone is a metaphor for our hard, obstinate nature against God. He replaced it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart that desires the things of God. And in a previous session, I compared the heart with the sources of rivers or the headwaters of a river. And with a river, you know, if the headwaters are contaminated, Everything downstream of the headwaters is also going to be contaminated. The entire river downstream is going to be contaminated if the headwaters are contaminated and polluted. And I likened the heart to the headwaters of three streams. And those three streams were the mind, the will, and the affections. And in the previous sessions, we looked at how the heart is changed. And as the heart is changed, like the headwaters of streams being cleansed, the streams that are downstream from the heart are also cleansed and changed. We've covered the downstream change of the mind and the downstream change of the will in previous sessions. And now we're going to move on to how the affections are changed with the new birth. So first we need to define what the affections are and what affections are not. Professor Victor Shepard gives a good definition that I liked. Affection is a felt response to an object called forth by an understanding of the nature of the object. A felt response to an object called forth by an understanding of the nature of the object. In other words, we examine something. We begin to understand it with the mind. And then we have a felt response to the object. If our felt response is positive, if our understanding of it causes us to be attracted to it, then we have an affection for it. What affections are not are passions. Passions differ from affections. The way passions differ is that passions overcome the will. However, affections do not overpower the will. And the way that 
Victor Shepard phrased it was like this. Whereas passion enslaves the will, affection is an exercise of the will. When we ask ourselves what our affections are, we can answer with, what do I love? What do I value? What do I see as worthy of praise? The sin nature of the unredeemed person, it corrupts every part of the person. As we've seen in previous studies, that's called the doctrine of total depravity. And that doesn't mean that mankind is as evil as mankind could possibly be. It does mean that unredeemed individuals suffer from spiritual corruption in every aspect, so that they can do no good works that bring saving merit. We looked at how sin corrupts the unredeemed mind and the unredeemed will. But since the affections, they're also downstream of the heart, unredeemed affections are also corrupted by sin. What we love is affected by sin. What we value is affected by sin. What we see as worthy of praise is affected by sin. But when the Holy Spirit causes one of, one of God's elect to be saved, a new foundation is laid. Our hearts are changed and our affections are changed. And to see this contrast with our affections before and after the new birth, we're going to look at three examples. First, how the new birth causes us to love God when before we did not love the true God. Second, we'll look at how the new birth changes our affections toward righteousness versus sin. And third, we'll look at how regeneration, the new birth, changes our affections toward prayer. So first, the new birth changes our affections in relation to God. The biggest contrast in our affections, comparing ourselves before salvation and after the new birth, is whether we love God. The unredeemed affections do not love the true God. Our unredeemed affections were not drawn to God as being worthy of praise. Before the new birth, people can show their failure to value the true God in a couple of ways. First, they could build idols that meet with their own approval, or they can be atheists. Let's look first at man's bent toward manufacturing idols. And where we can turn to see the affections of the unredeemed heart is in Romans chapter 1, which is where I'm going to be first. Romans chapter 1. As we get into this chapter, Paul's in the process of sealing up the whole world under the guilt of sin. People know that there's a God simply by looking around them at creation, at what we've previously called general revelation. But unredeemed people suppress that knowledge and as a result, they descend further into sin. And I'll read from Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. In this passage, Paul is showing how all of mankind is under the dark shadow of sin and guilt. In bringing God's indictment on the whole human race, Paul deals first with the Gentiles who did not have God's law. And even though they did not have the law, they still couldn't plead ignorance as a way to excuse their sin. Romans 1, beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul here describes the polluted streams of the unredeemed heart. First, he describes the unredeemed mind. They were futile in their thinking. Their futile thinking and foolish hearts led them to forsake, seeking the true God that made all the creations surrounding them. Instead, they constructed idols. Because their hearts were corrupt, what was downstream of their hearts was polluted. Their foolish minds led to them making idols in the form of created things. And this led to their affections being revealed as polluted. God removed restraint from their hearts so that their corrupted affections were revealed. And here in Romans, we see the most important aspect of the corruption of man's unredeemed affections. The corruption of affection is that he does not love the true God. Since man is religious by nature, when he hates the true God, he builds false gods that meet more with his approval. That's what Paul's emphasizing here in Romans. Mankind is willing to worship the creation, and not only images of humans, but images of birds, animals, and even creeping things. The affections of the old man result in unredeemed people building idols. The idols we see today, depending on where in the world we are, may be physical idols or philosophical idols. Unredeemed man builds a self-made religion. In a previous study, I quoted John Calvin, where he proved the bent of unredeemed people toward idols by the example of the account of Rachel stealing her father's idols. And Calvin said this about man's predisposition to idols. He said, from this, we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity, as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. And then an even more extreme display of the unredeemed mind and the unredeemed affections is atheism. Atheism, atheism that's the ultimate self-made religion. Man is naturally religious, so when he casts aside religion altogether, it is an extreme form of self-made religion. It's a worship of the self, with the conceit that a person can actually cast aside the obvious fact of the existence of God, a God to whom he is morally responsible. It's interesting that Philo, a Jewish philosopher of the first century, he connected atheism with love of self. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy that in the last days people would be lovers of self and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I'm going to turn next to Psalm 14. That speaks of the linkage between atheism, the corruption of the heart, and the corruption of the affections. And I'll read Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see 
if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the psalm here is going through a chain of cause to effect. He starts with the heart. The fool says in his heart there is no God. In the case of the atheist, the corruption of the human heart has caused this foolishness. And that foolishness leads to the abominable deeds, the turning aside from God. The foolishness of our actions when we were unredeemed apply to all of us before salvation, even those of us who are not atheists. But atheism really is a great display of foolishness. The 17th century Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote of this foolishness, and I'm going to quote him. He said, for the first, every atheist is a grand fool. If he were not a fool, he would not imagine a thing so contrary to the stream of the universal reason in the world, contrary to the rational dictates of his own soul, and contrary to the testimony of every creature and link in the chain of creation. And Charnock goes on writing this, the existence of God is the foundation of all religion. The whole building totters if the foundation be put out of course. If we have not deliberate and right notions of it, we shall perform no worship, no service, and yield no affection to him. Now Paul in Romans chapter 3 quotes this passage that we just read in Psalm 14 to show that not only are the Gentiles under sin, but the Jews as well. Part of Paul's argument is verse 3 of Psalm 14 which shows God evaluating all the unredeemed individuals on the earth and seeing that all turned aside, together they have become corrupt, and there is none who does good, not even one. The full corruption of the unredeemed heart is displayed in this psalm. The mind is corrupt, because verse 2 says that God has evaluated mankind to see if there are any who understand, and none are found. There are none who naturally seek after the true God. The will is corrupt in all unredeemed persons because verse 3 says that all have turned aside. And this turning aside is an act of the will. So we can see in Psalm 14 that the way heart corruption is shown is on kind of a continuum. At one end is atheism. Atheism is at the extreme of the continuum of corruption. But the way that Paul uses the psalm in Romans, indicts all of mankind, even people who are not atheists. The corruption of the unredeemed heart results in a denial of the true, righteous, and holy God. What that leads to with many is the far end of the continuum of denial, to deny even the existence of God. And this is the final and most complete manifestation of the hatred of the most holy God. To actually say within one's own heart, there is no God. To be able to say this, when all of humanity is swimming in evidence for the God who created all things, proves how corrupt the unredeemed affections are and how unredeemed affections influence the unredeemed mind. The redeemed person with a changed will begins to seek different things than what we valued before. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we should be 
diverting our affections from where they were placed before on things below to things above. Since our affections are changed and are now drawn more and more to eternal things, things that are above, we begin to seek what we have this affection for. And we can see this in the next passage that we'll look at, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You know, the Greek construction of the English word seek that we see here in the ESV it's in a form that we've been learning about in the home church fellowships, that Greek form is the present imperative. The present imperative, it's a command, and it's a command that we're not only to do once, but we are to obey as an ongoing habit. The New American Standard translates it a little bit better. It says, keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking the things above. And this Greek word has a semantic range or a range of meaning that includes to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective. Serious effort. So, to put all this together, we could understand verse 1 by thinking of it this way, in my own paraphrase here. As an ongoing habit of life, devote serious effort toward the objects of our redeemed affection, which are things above. As an ongoing habit of life, devote serious effort toward the objects of our redeemed affection, which are things above. When God causes us to be born again, there is a change in affections. Our change in affections cause a change, a change from being haters of the true God to loving the true God. I'll go next to the book of 1 Peter. In chapter 1, Peter is reminding us of our new birth and what that means. It means we have a solid hope of the resurrection. It means we have an inheritance. Our inheritance is perfect because it's guarded in heaven where it can't be taken away. I'll read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, where Peter begins by relating how we rejoice in this inheritance, even in the midst of trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I find verse 8 to be especially moving when it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Because true affection needs to have knowledge of what we have affection for. God has given us revelation of himself. That special revelation is in scripture. The apostle Peter had seen Jesus, but the flock that Peter was ministering to, they had not yet seen Jesus with physical eyes. Yet, even though they had not seen Jesus, they loved Jesus. How could they love Jesus even though they'd never seen Jesus like Peter had? 
because even though they didn't have the advantage that Peter had of having seen Jesus, they had knowledge of Jesus because of the message of the gospel brought by the apostles. We can only have affection for what we have knowledge of. And like the flock of God that Peter was writing to, we too have knowledge of Jesus by the special revelation of the scriptures. And because their hearts had been changed by regeneration, they loved Jesus. For those of us here tonight, knowledge of Jesus has been given to us in scripture. Our hearts have been changed in regeneration. And now we've gone from being haters of God to loving Jesus. We went from what we read in Romans 1, not honoring God or giving thanks to him, to what we read in 1 Peter, though you have not seen him, you love him. One aspect of our affections is what we find worthy of worship. Our affections, whether they come from a redeemed heart or an unredeemed heart, will be revealed in what they find worthy. When we worship, we are ascribing worth to the object of our worship. What do we see as worthy? What do we find to be worthy of praise? Christians, those who are born again, have redeemed affections. And we find the true God to be worthy and alone worthy of praise and worship. I'll turn next to Daniel chapter 5. And here we can see a contrast between unredeemed affections and redeemed affections. Daniel chapter 5. In this case, their unredeemed affections caused them to find false gods worthy of praise and the true God an object of mockery. I'll read from Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Kind of like how it's written here in scripture, what the idols are constructed of. And it goes from like most valuable down to least valuable, showing that it doesn't really matter. They're all just as valueless. It starts with gold, silver, down to bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It doesn't matter. They're all worthless. So first, this pagan royal court thinks it's not enough to drink from the palace's normal drinking vessels. They bring out the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem that they had plundered and use them as common vessels. I think it's likely that Belshazzar did this as a deliberate insult to the true God. In this display of corrupted affections, as they drank wine from these vessels, they praised the so-called gods that they thought worthy of praise, idols of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Compare this with what we read in 1 Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Our affections determine what we find worthy of praise. The next object of our affections is how we view righteousness versus sin. 
The unredeemed affections do not have a love for what is holy and righteous. Before we were born again, we did not act out in as evil of a manner as we could possibly be. God, in what we call his common grace, restrains mankind from being as evil as possible. So before our new birth, we did have a conscience. To some extent, we knew right from wrong. But our affections were not inclined toward righteousness. We did not love the truth of the righteousness of God. To some extent, we thought that God would, you know, morally speaking, grade on a curve. Or we thought that God was really not all that concerned with absolute holiness, as long as we did our best. We may have thought that God was not the blindingly holy God that he truly is. So to excuse ourselves, we redefined our sins to be small shortcomings. And we thought that the moral judgments of God were, were not that much different than our own. I'll read next from Psalm 50, which brings an indictment against Israel for thinking in exactly this way. In this psalm, the Lord brings the charge against his people that their worship was only outward. They brought a lot of animal sacrifices, but they are pleased with adulterers and thieves, and they indulge in sins of their speech. The Lord says this in Psalm 50, verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. When the Lord says, these things you have done, he's referring to their blatant sins. But because God is merciful, and he gave them time for repentance, he didn't bring judgment right away. So verse 21 lays the charge that's perhaps even more serious. You thought that I was one like yourself. That is the bent of the unredeemed heart. They construct the God of their own minds to not be absolutely holy. But the God of their minds is one who tolerates their sin. Because our unredeemed affections did not love righteousness, we downplayed the holiness of God. The new birth, which results in a changed heart, lays a new foundation for our affections. And it lays a new foundation for how we see sin and righteousness. How do we begin to view righteousness now that we've been born again? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, gave us a figure of speech that we can relate to. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 5, and I'll read verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When we hunger and thirst, that's all we think about. When I'm at work, and you know what? It's getting close to lunchtime. It gets harder to concentrate on my work. Work starts to recede in my mind a little, and lunch begins to draw my mind. And we get really hungry and thirsty. Those sensations are foremost in our minds. When we have that kind of overwhelming physical need, it's hard to direct our minds anywhere else. Our minds are directed toward meeting the need of hunger and thirst. Our wills are directed toward meeting that need. But our emotions are also very invested in satisfying that need. 
Hunger and thirst come with physical sensations, and our emotions are affected by that need. Our affections are directed towards satisfying that need. And this hunger and thirst for righteousness might remind us of Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, where the psalmist expresses his spiritual hunger when he wrote, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So back to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A phrase that we see here in our translation, they shall be satisfied, it's a translation of a single Greek word. It's a strong Greek word, which referred to the, the feeding and fattening of animals in a stall. It's the same word used in the account of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, where the crowds were described as filled and satisfied. If our affections are redeemed affections, if we value righteousness, Jesus describes us as blessed. This blessedness is because our hunger and thirst will be satisfied as though we're at a feast. God gives us satisfaction to that intense desire, this new affection. First and more important, most importantly, by reckoning Christ's righteousness to us. And this is the truth that we're going to study later on as we go through further in the Ordo Salutis when we get to justification. But God also brings satisfaction of this desire, this changed affection by enabling us gradually to please God with our actions. After we were regenerated, our affections changed. We can see this contrast by comparing Ephesians chapter 2 to what we just read about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And I'll read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul is here setting up the black and white contrast between what we were before God's work of salvation and what we are after that work. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that's a contrast. This passage in Ephesians describes all of us, before regeneration. We might think, wow, I wasn't as bad as all that, but we were. We might have been known among our neighbors for being nice and exhibiting what we've referred to before as civic righteousness. But this passage in Ephesians lays bare the hard truth. It says in verse 3, we all once lived. There's three words here in verse 3 that we can look at. Passions, desires, and nature. We were by nature children of wrath. Our nature before regeneration led to us living according to unredeemed passions and unredeemed desires or corrupt affections. Before the Holy Spirit applied redemption to us and changed our hearts in the new birth, those were our passions. Those were our desires. 
our passions and desires ruled our will, so that we directed our will toward carrying out those desires. Before the new birth, before God in his mercy saved us and changed our hearts, our affections were unredeemed. Our affections were toward the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body and mind. Our unredeemed affections enslaved our will to live according to our affections. But at the new birth, there's this great change in our hearts and what is downstream of the heart, including the affections. A new foundation is laid, and we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. A third example of how we can see our change in affections is how we pray. A person's prayers are one place that reveals where his affections are. Our prayers are a kind of intersection between the mind, the will, and the affections. It's a place where all three of them meet. The mind and the will and the affections all meet in our prayers. If we pray at all, our minds have already informed us that there's a God who exists and listens to our prayers. Prayer does involve concentration. That involves aiming our will at asking God for the desires of our hearts. And then finally, the content of our prayers shows where our affections lie. If you'd like to follow along, I'm going to read next from the book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4. And James tells us here about two major things that our prayer or lack of prayer tells us about ourselves. In fact, one of the first things about our affections is revealed in whether we pray at all. I'll read from James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James gives people of God, a solemn warning about where lustful passions lead. Lusts and affections for the things of this present age can lead to conflict, even in the church. We need to be supplied with what we need, yes, but the problem is that we use the world's methods to gain those things, and then we're not satisfied with enough. Instead, James reminds the flock that God has already given to us an allowable avenue for receiving supply from God, and that avenue is prayer. But verse 3 points out the connection between prayer and our affections. If our affections reflect a changed heart, our prayers will reflect those affections. If our affections are not lined up with a changed heart, our prayers reflect that too. The first thing that this passage in James reveals is that people have desires, but prayer is not on their agenda. Instead, they rely on the world's means of gaining their desires. Verse 2 tells us that the world desires, does not have, so they murder. The world covets and doesn't gain the object of their desires, so they fight and they quarrel. The Greek word that we see 
as the English translation quarrel here actually has military overtones. It can mean to wage war. In fact, that's how the King James translates it. You fight and war. The word war implies a prolonged hostility, a hostility that's constant, going on a long time, so that a person can gain the object of their desire from someone else. You know what? We're not surprised to see this in the world, but James is saying that this happens in the church too. James then zeroes in on the attitude of the world. You do not have because you do not ask. The unregenerate person often doesn't even consider prayer to be an option. His unregenerate mind informs him that prayer is useless, that only coveting, fighting, and warring are effective. His will follows his mind so that his will is directed to that earthly war that he's set up. His affections are on the things of the world and not on God's will, so this war continues. Spurgeon said this about the unregenerate and the fact that many of them see no need to pray at all. He said, Why does not this man of intense desires take to asking? The reason is, first, because it's unnatural to the natural man to pray as well expect him to fly. He despises the idea of supplication. Pray, says he? No, I want to be at work. I cannot waste time on devotions. Prayers are not practical. I want to fight my way. While you are praying, I shall have beaten my opponent. I go to my counting house and leave you to your Bibles and your prayers. He hath no mind for asking of God. So the first thing that James tells us in this passage is that there is a danger that we won't pray, that we'll see the world's way of fighting and warring as the way to feed our passions. And then there's a second thing that James tells us. The second thing is that we can pray, but our prayer misses the mark. So as verse 3 says, we don't receive. The ESV says that we can ask wrongly. And the Greek word is even more intense here. The Greek word is more along the lines of wickedly. Other aspects of our prayer can be correct. We can first choose to pray instead of war against our neighbor. We can pray to the true God instead of an idol. But we can still pray with wrong motives. We can pray according to affections that are not in line with the affections we should have from a redeemed heart. James tells us in verse 3 that we use prayer incorrectly when our prayers are directed toward satisfying our passions. The literal Greek is pleasures. Our word hedonism comes from this Greek word. But I think the ESV does give some light to the word when they render it passions, because we've seen that passions overcome the will and rule the will. What good affections do is exercise the will rather than ruling the will. What James is warning against is using prayer in an incorrect way toward hedonism, a way that God does not honor, in a way that God will not answer. This is prayer that shows a person is still being driven by the old affections or passions of this world. And verse 4 explains what the source of these worldly affections or passions are. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Like in so many places in Scripture, we're given 
fork in the road between two things that can't be reconciled, friendship with the world or friendship with God. A changed heart is a foundation toward moving away from the old friendship with the world, moving away from hedonism, which is living for worldly pleasure. Our prayers reflect the object of our affections with our will engaged in petitioning God according to our affections. The 17th century Puritan William Ames expresses it like this. He wrote, prayer is not a simple will or desire, but a representation of the will or the will exhibited and represented before God. For it is not sufficient to prayer that we desire to have something. If it were so, then profane men would pray most because they most desire to have something. But there's also required a desire to obtain that thing from God and a will to seek it from him. And then there is the representing or insinuating of this desire before God. And what William Ames wrote is that prayer is how we verbally represent our will before God. Prayer represents our affections. When we pray, we are showing that not only do we have desires, but we believe in the true God who can grant the desires of our hearts. At the new birth, the new foundation laid for our hearts results in a newness of our affections. And because of this, our prayers should begin to reflect this. First, we'll be moved to pray when perhaps in our unredeemed state we hadn't prayed before. Second, what we pray for should begin to reflect a renewal of our affections, our new desires. The next passage where we can see how prayer reveals our affections is in Psalm 10. Psalm 10 describes the prayers of God's people as an outpouring of their desires. And I'll read from Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18, which links our prayers with our affections or our desires. In this psalm, the psalmist desires and hungers for God in his attribute of justice to come to the aid of those afflicted by the wicked. Psalm 10, beginning in verse 17. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The prayers of God's people are here described as an outpouring of the desire of the afflicted. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. In this case, the godly afflicted one knows of God's justice and his affections long for that justice. In his prayer, the afflicted one is applying his will in petitioning God to display his justice. Our affections result in our desires, and our desires are expressed in prayer. Our prayers are a kind of, once again, a kind of intersection of our minds, our wills, and our affections. So those are three examples of how our affections change with regeneration with the new birth. The examples were loving the true God, loving righteousness, and how our affections are shown in prayer. The change in our affections when we were born again is one reason why, in the order of salvation, the new birth has to come before faith. 
In your notes, you'll see in the Ordo Salutis, in the order of salvation, that faith comes logically after regeneration. And when we get further on in our study, we start looking at the definition of saving faith. We'll see that saving faith involves knowledge of the gospel, agreement or assent to the gospel, and finally, trust in Christ. Since faith requires knowledge, saving faith requires a redeemed mind. Since faith requires assent or agreement, saving faith requires a redeemed will. Since faith requires trusting in Christ, saving faith requires redeemed affections. True saving faith cannot logically happen until the new birth has happened. After looking at the doctrine of regeneration and how our minds, wills, and affections are fundamentally changed, we might be tempted to be less assured that we're truly regenerated. Because it's easy to look at how we think and what we will and what we love and see glaring imperfections. But it's important to realize that the new birth is the beginning of a growth process. Regeneration lays down a new foundation. Our hearts are changed, and now we have a new path going forward, a path that was unavailable to us before God did this work. Later on, as we go further in the order of salvation, we're going to get to the doctrine of sanctification. Regeneration is an event worked by God that happens all at once. You can't be more or less regenerated. You can't be halfway born again. You're either spiritually dead or spiritually alive. But sanctification is a gradual and lifelong process. One theologian phrased it like this when he said, Sanctification is distinguished from regeneration as growth from birth, or as the strengthening of a holy disposition from the original impartation of it. In other words, just like with babies, you have birth, then you have growth and maturity. Regeneration is the beginning, and sanctification is God's continuing work. I'll read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which shows us how God causes us to be changed. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 tells us that there are three aspects to how God is doing the work to change us. We were changed, we are being changed, and we will be changed. We were changed, we are being changed, and we will be changed. We were changed because the passage tells us that God began a good work in us. We were regenerated. We were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life in a single moment. Then we are being changed. God is working in us to further the work that he began. Finally, we will be changed. There is a completion point, which is in the life to come when the work will be completed. So for those of us who God has regenerated, we might look at our lives and be tempted to be discouraged at the state of our minds, wills, and affections. But don't be in despair. He who began a good work of salvation in you by regenerating you, he never gives up on a project. He will bring it to completion. 
We were changed in the new birth. We are being changed in sanctification. And we will be changed on the final day in the resurrection and glorification. What we have now is that we've been, now that we've been born again, is the foundation to what we will become going forward. We've been changed at a fundamental level, but we still battle against remaining sin. We have a new beginning, but we're continuing to grow to maturity. Philippians 1.6, which we just read, tells us that salvation is God's work. We are God's handiwork, his project. And God always completes his projects on schedule. Because we are born again, we have the beginning. The hungering and thirsting after righteousness. But God is continuing his project on this new foundation. We were changed. We are being changed. And we will be changed on the final day. So to wrap up this section on the new birth, a quote from Spurgeon when he spoke on Philippians 1.6 and how God began a good work in us. He said, the apostle calls it a work. And in the deepest sense, it is indeed a work to convert a soul. If Niagara could suddenly be made to leap upward instead of forever dashing downward from its rocky height, it were not such a miracle as to change the perverse will and the raging passions of men. To remove the leopard spots is proverbially a difficulty, yet these are but surface works. To renew the very core of manhood and tear sin from its hold upon man's heart, this is not alone the finger of God, but the bearing of his arm. Conversion is a work comparable to the making of a world. He only who fashioned the heavens and the earth could create a new nature. It is a work that is not to be paralleled. It is unique and unrivaled, seeing that Father, Son, and Spirit must all cooperate in it. For to implant the new nature in the Christian, there must be the decree of the Eternal Father, the death of the ever-blessed Son, and the fullness of the operation of the adorable Spirit. It is a work indeed. The labors of Hercules were but trifles compared with this, to slay lions and hydras and cleanse Augean stables. All this is child's play compared with renewing a right spirit in the fallen nature of man. Let's finish up in prayer. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the new birth, for laying a new foundation in our lives. You intervened when we could do nothing. You did the whole work alone of causing the new birth within us. It was something that we were not seeking at the time. And you accomplished it in us. You drew us into the kingdom. You dragged us into the kingdom. We had no will to come to you, but you changed our will. You changed our mind. You changed our will. You changed our affections. You changed our hearts and you changed these streams that are downstream from the heart and you cleansed us. Lord, we thank you for that new foundation. And we thank you, Lord, that you never give up on a project, that you are carrying it forward, that you are sanctifying us day by day, that we have a new foundation and we're going forward from birth and immaturity to maturity. We thank you, Lord, that we were changed, we are being changed, and we will be changed. And we thank you, Lord, as we look forward to the final day, to the day of the resurrection, in which we will finally be changed fully and completely. 
Thank you, Lord, for these things. Because we cannot thank ourselves for any of these things. You've accomplished it. We thank you for your mighty work, the bearing of your arm in this mighty, mighty work of regeneration, Lord. Amen.